This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. A Texas mayor dared to defy the president of the United States, and that's how we got Texas Rangers baseball. Hello and welcome to a very special 50th anniversary edition of the Straight Up Texas podcast presented by Whataburger. This is the official podcast of the Texas Rangers. I'm your host, Sherrod Sandler, and the reason this is such a special edition, we're releasing it on April 21st, which is the exact day 50 years ago that the Rangers took the field in Texas for the very first time. A brief history lesson for our listeners. The Rangers did not start in Texas. They were first the Washington Senators from 1961 through the 1971 season. This was the second time there was a team in D.C., and well, there was a bit of a struggle to fill the stands. So the owner, Bob Short, looked to move the team against the wishes of President Richard Nixon. And this is where we'll welcome in our special guest, Parker Vandergriff, the grandson of the late mayor of Arlington, Tom Vandergriff, who was the visionary who brought Major League Baseball to our area. Parker, welcome to the Straight Up Texas podcast. Thanks for hanging with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> All right, so let's get right into the home opener, April 11th. Uh, the Rangers hosted the Colorado Rockies, the 50-year celebration. I think fans you know, are aware of uh, names throughout the organization's history, and one of those names uh, is your grandfather, of course. And it was really neat you and your dad were a part of opening day 2022 mm-hmm. obviously none of this happens without your grandfather 50 years ago did you take any time to reflect on just how your family still is a part of something that has been such a big part of this this community not just from a sports standpoint but just in general yeah i, I did you know my my grandfather threw out the first pitch in 1972 on opening day and then at Arlington Stadium. And then he threw out the final pitch at Arlington Stadium in 1993. So we kind of bookended that stadium. So yeah, it was, you know, unique being back here 50 years later um, and being on the field and seeing fans. You know, I, that was one thing he always loved when he came to games is he would always just sit and watch the fans because, you know, the, the story began as just a dream from one person and then it just expanded to millions of people. So yeah, I mean, it, it was fun to be here and, you know, bookend the 50th and um, kind of continue continue that tradition so the the rangers and really i think for any sports team when they move or when it's an expansion franchise it's not like hey i'm gonna wake up on a monday and this thing's gonna happen you know a couple weeks later Uh, but in the case of the rangers this was a a multi-year process Uh, and i want to kind of try and get into i'm sure we could be here for days if we got into every little detail but uh, you've kind of become the the representative in, in some ways of the, the Vandergriff family to, to tell these stories and, and share this history that otherwise you know, could get lost. Uh, and I think it's, it's really neat having you here to, to make sure that this stuff never gets lost. But how did this all start? Uh, to your understanding, how, how did the Rangers 
get to Texas? When did it start? And uh, I understand there were some pretty uh, powerful people who maybe weren't so in line <laughs> with, with that move. Yeah, there were. Well, when you look at its totality, it was 13 years. It took 13 years to get the team here. So that began in 1958. But um, it, it literally – he was my grandfather was a lover of baseball. I absolutely just loved the game. And he would, he would travel with his dad to St. Louis to see the Cardinals play because that was the closest team, I mean, anywhere. I mean, that's where – if you're a baseball fan in North Texas, that's who you were fans of. And um, so, you know, he, he just had a dream, like, well, why not Major League Baseball in Texas at the time? And – uh, so he began that that dream in 1958 and just started chasing every major league owner um, that he could from the Cubs, White Sox, uh, the Los Angeles uh, Dodgers. Uh, I mean, everybody. He had he had had filters everywhere, and um, it really. I think we when he first got spurned the first time when the Continental League imploded, which would have been a third major league. It kind of set him on a mission. Like we can do this. We've got people on board. Um, and we've got some advocates, and one of them being Gene Autry, who was a um, the Hollywood baseball movie mogul. Who, you know, for people who don't know, he he was the um, the author, the writer of Red no Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, uh, which one of the, you know, the greatest songs in in uh, world history. Um, and anyways, he he became good friends with him. He became his like his his baseball um, you know Washington deep throat type character, and you know telling him <laughs> where to turn, where to go. And and from there, they they just they came up with a plan to create a minor league baseball team, the Dallas-Fort Worth Spurs, um, which was headed by Lamar Hunt of Dallas and Tommy Mercer of Fort Worth. And um, they just started knocking on doors and knocking on doors. And with that team, they shattered minor league attendance records. Um, you know, you had people like Cal Ripken Jr., who was a bat boy at the time. Uh, there, nobody knows that that fun fact. He was um, a bat boy of the, the he Spurs. He was a bat boy of the Spurs here in Arlington. Really? Yeah. Do you know how he ended up in Arlington? Because – didn't grow up here, right? No. So, do his, you know how his, his dad, Cal Ripken, was the manager of the Spurs. Go. And so, Cal Ripken, and, and you know, at that time, baseball was like, um, you, you visualize Sandlot, right? Like in the 1950s and 60s, when, you know, Arlington's not like it is today. It was, I mean, it was grassland, it was prairie land, and 7,500 people when my grandfather was first mayor. And so, I mean, it was like quintessential, you know, just fun youth league baseball at the time. And so, when they built this park, it was like this park and the middle of nowhere and people laugh they said there's no way baseball can be supported here like we're we got the dallas cowboys we're a football town and um and they just shattered attendance records people came in numbers and they're they had these old hills that were on the sides of turnpike stadium where kids would come and roll and catch balls and just a different era but um yeah you have people like cal ripton ron shelton who wrote bull durham was a infielder for the spurs and a lot of his inspiration for that movie came from his time here playing in arlington and then you fast forward, you know, with that film um, and the final scene in that movie when Tim Robbins makes it to the big leagues, they're in Arlington Stadium, and that's the background of where he made it. So there's there's cool little tie-ins, but um, you know that when they built that stadium, then they went after the National League and tried to get a National League team here, but the Houston Astros uh, single-handedly blocked that move, and that was pretty crushing to all those folks. And so organizationally, they they had the power to basically reject. Yeah, at the time, the, you had to have a unanimous vote from owners to, to move a team. And since they were spurned many times before and get an expansion team and, um, you know, a lot of bl uh, blindsiding, uh, that was their next hope was let's try to, let's try to move a team here. And uh, Judge Roy Hoffines, who owned the Astros, you know, built the Astrodome, the eighth wonder of the world, uh, he said Debatable. basically – 
Yeah, debatable. <laughs> he said, you know, no way. He's like, you know, because he had a monopoly on, I mean, Central Texas, Mexico, I mean, Louisiana, Arkansas. And uh, so you bring another team in here, it cuts, you know, that, that empire in half. And so it was not going to let it happen. And they had, I mean, he had Lyndon Johnson call him once um, when, when my grandfather was up in Washington, D.C. With, with LBJ. And, you know, he was, LBJ was reluctant at first. This is according to a story from my uh, granddad. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm president of the United States. I'm not the president of Texas. And my granddad said, well, you're going to be a Texan long after you're president of the United States. And so he ended up uh, calling Hoffines. Apparently there was a heated conversation back and forth because they knew each other well. And he got off the phone and he said, not even Jesus Christ will convince Hoffine to change his mind. He is not <laughs> voting for you guys. So um, that was just crushing. And they, I mean, he, he literally blocked him. It's like literally the Astros who are now our nemesis today were the ones who kept us out of the big leagues for the longest time. Um, and what's so funny, at, at Turnpike Stadium, they had Judge Roy Hoffine's day to celebrate him after that big move, which they sent a team to Montreal, which is how Montreal got their team, the Expos. Um, they had Judge Roy Hoffine's day, and they flew a helicopter over the stadium, and they said Judge Roy Hoffine is going to make a surprise visit. And uh, instead, they, they open the doors, and there's a dummy dressed up as Judge <laughs> Hoffine, and somebody pushes him out of, out of the door, and he falls on the ground. And the video of it's so funny because, like, everyone, you know, is cringing. But you never see that today. I mean, it wouldn't happen today. But, yeah, they, they, they disliked him a lot. And uh, my grandfather said, I'll never, make it, I'll never go to a Houston Astros game ever again because of that. And he, he was not one that carried a grudge, but he carried a grudge for him. Um, and then they went after when, – when that happened, they went after the Seattle Pilots who were, who were um, imploding in Seattle and became a dogfight between him and a guy named Bud Selig, a used car salesman from Milwaukee. And Bud Selig ended up winning that fight. Um, and that, that was the final blow for the other folks who were involved, Lamar Hunt and, and crew and Joe Macko. Um, and so Tom Vandergriff kind of went after it quietly um, alone after that. And that's when the, it all came to a head in 1971 with uh, the Washington Senators and, you know, taking baseball from the nation's capital. Okay, so I want to get into to that. I want to get into, we talked to the, the top about, you know, basically fighting with a president. But why did your grandfather think it would work here? Why in a, a, a small, you know, at the time, a you know, small market, and, and even today Arlington is surrounded, of course, by yeah. bigger markets, but uh, Arlington in a vacuum is not New York City. It's not Los Angeles yet. Uh, this has held up. I mean, we're, we're 50 years in and, and not going anywhere. So do you, do you recall in conversation why he was so confident it would work? Yeah, uh, definitely. He went to USC, graduated from USC, Southern Cal, and so he Wait, really, did he really? Yeah, he did. Um, oh, I went to USC. Too? Yeah, I didn't know that. My whole family are USC So he went Trojans. to USC, and he doesn't like the Astros? No, he can't. What do you mean he doesn't like the no, Astros? No, no, I'm saying, like, th those two things are true, right? Yeah, those are true. I think I would have been best friends yeah, with, he with your been. grandfather. Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, he would have been. So I have to like, bite my tongue on he, some of this Astros was, stuff, but i got to bring that up. And he was in sports broadcasting. I, well, I did know that. Yeah. I was aware of that. Okay. Yeah. So he saw there when he, the, the big boom that happened after World War II in Anaheim specifically. He, fell in, he like was enamored by Anaheim. And um, so I think he, he saw similarities between Anaheim and, and Arlington. Um, now, at the time, I mean, he was like a huge mover in Dallas-Fort Worth. A, a good friend of his, Jim Wright, who became U.S. Speaker of the House back in the 80s, um, you know, he said, if you were to name five people in all of North Texas history, the past 150 plus years, 
he is at the top list for the most influential, transformative people across the entire area. And so people in Dallas and Fort Worth just gravitated to him. So he had this ability to kind of pull those two cities together. So I'd say Dallas and Fort Worth would never be Dallas Fort Worth if it was not for Tom Vander mm-hmm. from Arlington. And so he, he's the one who coined the term Metroplex. No, that's another fun fact in the area. He's the one who made up that term. And so that's when now we say the word Metroplex and it all came from him. Um, so he, he just knew that there was this pulling power between being sent like the center point of the two cities. I can drive 25 minutes that way, 25 minutes mm-hmm. that way. And you know, baseball can have both. And so I think he saw that as a ripe opportunity. So he wasn't dumb when he, you know, his marketing ploy, um, you know, while it, this is Arlington, he was a big lover of Arlington. He wasn't dumb to know I've got to say Dallas Fort Worth, right? Like this is a bigger mm-hmm. effort. And then even when it came to naming the team later, you know, he always said, you know, a lot of people want to name it the Arlington this, the DFW that. And he said, it's got to be Texas. He said, like, if we're going to plant a flag in the ground and, you know, it's got to be something synonymous with the state. So, you know, he was very forward thinking, like, and, and, and that, but he, he built, um, uh, this city after, I mean, Six Flags Over Texas was supposed to be Disneyland. He tried to get Disneyland here, and Walt Disney, you know, was building Orlando at the time in, in secret, and so that didn't happen. But that was their attempt was to build a Disneyland, and so that's how Six Flags came about. And so there's always an intention to build that, try to build up this area to attract Major League Baseball, you know, being the center point between the two. So there, there was a, a grander scheme at play, I'd say. It's amazing. Okay. So – the president, Richard mm-hmm. Nixon, uh, was not a big fan of this. So how did that dynamic start? How did he overcome that? Because, like, in my mind, you've got Tom Vandergriff, who is as much influence as he had. There's the president of the United States. Yeah. And how do you overcome that hurdle? He, you know, my grandfather was interesting is he, while he was the mayor of Arlington, he was very, I use the word transformative, but he, he knew lots of people. I mean, he, uh, you know, he knew JFK, he knew Lyndon Johnson, knew all these, all these folks. And he actually knew Richard Nixon somewhat before because he went to college with his wife um, <laughs> at the same time. So at USC, at USC. All right. Yep. And uh, so uh, in any event, I, I, I'll back up a, a second though, like how it all kind of came to a head. Cause I think it's interesting, but um, he got a phone call from uh, Gabe Paul, who was the uh, the owner of the Cleveland uh, Indians at the time, and he said, "You've got to come, um, come to Cleveland. I've got to talk with you." And so he flew all the way to Cleveland. Said it was a blasted, cold winter day, and he said he gave him like the news: Bob Short is in huge trouble. They're threatening to turn off the lights at RFK Stadium. Um, you've got to you've got to go out for the Senators. And he said, but don't tell short, don't tell anybody you can't, I mean, you can't talk about this because you're going to meet a lot, you know, there's going to be people in high places that will try to stop it. Congress will get involved and don't tell short because short was not really keen on moving at the time too. And so he conferred with Gene Autry and Gene Autry said, yeah, it's true. Go for the senators. You know, we've got your backing. So he went after it after very secretly, um, really at spring training that following year. And then um, eventually, you know, lots of grumblings happened. There were, you know, other meetings that had been held by the American League after, you know, people started getting wind that someone was, you know, stoking the fire. And uh, so it was all, all leaked in June of 1971 that, um, that the senators were considering leaving. And, and Bob Short denied it, said, no, it's, it's not true, it's not true. And yet these conversations had been happening. Um, and so Richard Nixon obviously found out pretty quickly, and he was a, a huge senators fan. And you think about the role of the president, that every president since William Howard Taft had thrown out the ceremonial first pitch at a senator's game since, you know, 
gosh, baseball in Washington had been around since 1900. And, uh, you know, FDR had kept baseball alive with the green light letter. And so the, the, the presidency and baseball in Washington was just, it was always a thing, kept America going. And so when he heard about it, he was uh, pretty upset. And he, he even said that it would be the worst thing that happened to the Capitol since the British set it afire in 1814. And so which, which kind of sums it up right there. And so um, he wasn't thrilled at all. And so there was a, I, I, there's a story that my granddad always told when um, he flew down, he flew up to Washington, D.C. and to, to meet with Short. And, you know, at that point, the news had leaked and he got in a cab and the cab driver, um, you know, was ranting and raving about this guy from Texas who was trying to take the team and this and that and, um, you know, wasn't saying nice things. And my, the, my two aunts were in the car as well. And my grandfather admitted, he said, well, I hate to admit I'm, I'm, I'm that guy who's trying to take your team. And so the cabbie, like, stopped the cab and kicked them out of the car. Um, so on that same trip, <laughs> while he was meeting with Short in his office, David Eisenhower, who's the namesake to Camp David, um, was Richard Nixon's son-in-law. Richard Nixon dispatched him up to meet with Short, um, you know, saying, you can't do this, you can't move this team, it's bad for baseball, um, you're gonna have a lot of problems. And uh, when uh, David Eisenhower showed up, my grandfather was there in his office, and so they had to shove my granddad into a closet and hide him in that closet while David Eisenhower was in there, you know, ranting and raving about keeping the senators here. I don't know what was said in, in that <laughs> meeting, or how long he was there, but, um, I mean, you just those type of moments you just can you can imagine. But um, Nixon, yeah, he, he was a force to, and he tried to stop at the very last minute too when they made the vote in uh, in Boston. But he he was definitely a force and um, you know a somewhat villain in in history. I guess you could look back now. So he there were a lot of people who tried to try to stop it. There's some some interesting names who are part of this story. President Richard Nixon being one. You mentioned Gene Autry, Judge Roy Hoffines. Uh, baseball fans probably know who Charlie Finley is uh, with his connection to the Oakland Athletics. What was his role in all this? I understand he's, yeah. he's kind of a part of the story. Yeah, I'd say Charlie Finley was a chameleon. And he was, you know, I think he started out as a, a good friend of my grandfather's. And they actually stayed in connection later on once the Rangers were here. But um, he just did things his own way. Like he just was a unique guy. And he, back in 1960, he had, um, talked about moving the athletics here when they were in Kansas city and multiple times made trips down, um, to North Texas to, to check out the site to see Turnpike stadium about, about moving his team here. And, and for all intents and purposes, he said, I'm going to move to Texas. I'm going to move to Texas. And he always just pulled a bait and switch and did something different. And, um, he ended up going to Oakland, of course. Uh, but then fast forward to the, the final um, vote in Boston, and uh, they were in trouble because Gene Autry, his biggest ally for all these years, was hospitalized. And so he was in a, ho a hospital in Boston and couldn't be there to vote. And I can't quite remember the numbers. If you had to have eight votes or nine votes um, to get the team, but they, they were short um, in what they needed because they had the Orioles were against it, the Chicago White Sox were against it, the Yankees were on the fence. And Can I ask, do you know why – I know there's all sorts of political agendas in play here, but do, do you know why those teams were against it? Because right now in the sports landscape, expansion is, is viewed as a good thing because it grows the sport. It gets mm -hmm. more people in, in more parts of the country or even, you know, depending on the conversation, the world involved. Do you recall why people didn't want a team here? 
Um, you know, I've got a quote from, um, I believe it was John Allen of the White Sox, and he just said he just didn't believe the Texas story. And, and whatever he meant by that, saying, I just, I just don't believe the narrative that they're going to pull. I don't believe the narrative that they're a baseball town. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't believe it. So I think that was one thing. Then you have people like Gerald Hofberger of the Orioles. I think his was more um, somewhat an effort to save face because the Orioles and the Senators were really close. And I think if he voted for it, it would hurt his brand. Um, and so I think that's why they kind of stayed out of it. Um, but then there was talk that <laughs> kind of showing both, so both, both, sides of the, both sides of the coin that um, once the senators were to leave, they would never come back because you're in kind of a situation with Astros and, and uh, you know, our area that the Orioles are so close. Why would they want the, another team back in? They're just going to swallow up that market. And so, um, and they kind of did, and, they, and, and then baseball didn't return for 34 years, so that was somewhat true. So, you know, I think everyone had their own reasons, but um, Charlie Finley was a different story. And so with Gene Autry not being able to vote, they needed Finley, who was in their camp the whole time, um, to, to vote for it. Well, he was emboldened at, the, at the, that final hour and said, I'm not going to give you guys my vote unless you trade me Jeff Burroughs, who was their young up-and-coming you know, stud prospect, and so short, you know, so I can't give you Burroughs, like, he's, he's one of the guys we're taking here to, like, market, and, um, like, we need him, and so he was like, I'm not voting for you, I want Burroughs, and um, so he held out, um, they, was what they had to do was then go to uh, Joe Cronin, who was the American League president, went to Gene Autry's hospital bed, and got his vote from a hospital bed, and so that was the vote that they needed, and so because of that, they, Charlie Finley then redacted his you know, blackmail and said, sure, I'll vote for you now, because he didn't want to be that guy that, <laughs> that tried to do that. And my granddad, he said, he, there was a moment after when they, when they made the, the final vote, and um, uh, he came up to him and he said, you know, something like, oh, I'm just so happy for you, congratulations, and like totally forgetting that he was like trying to pull the whole thing out from under their feet. And then they stayed friends afterwards, which was so weird. You know, I've got photos of them in the stands at games, but you know, I think he, my granddad had an ability to just I think brush things off and just move forward. So I feel like just that, that dynamic is like the baseball version of house of cards. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just like, I think of like all the, the wheeling and dealing and the, the deception and this and that. And I, that, that's amazing. Is there, I guess, okay, well, I, I want to ask you another general question about the move, but a few other people. So you mentioned David Eisenhower. Yeah. Uh, I, I read Ethan Hawke's grandfather. Yeah. Uh, was this training day before training day? <laughs> what, what, what do we have going on here? So H Howard Green was uh, a really close friend of my granddad's. And see, this is this is where the like the from a local perspective of politics, you know, where things come into play. But, um, you know, he kind of traded things, my, traded things with Fort Worth. And so my grandfather was a big mover around here. Um, Fort Worth wanted a new convention center. And he was the county judge of Tarrant County, uh, Howard Green, which is Ethan Hawke's grandfather. And so he said, well, I'll support your convention center if you support uh, the construction of a stadium for us in Arlington. And so they did. And so that's how they got Turnpike Stadium built was by the support of Fort Worth and, and, the, and the commissioners and judges there. So Howard Green, um, who was Tarrant County judge, was integral in getting the stadium built. Uh, he was here on opening day, too. And, and if he's one of the guys that's, you know, iconic photos of um, you know all the, all the players lined up on the, on the sides and there's a group of men kind of near the um, uh, pitcher's mound and he's one of those guys there so he was I mean he was a huge Ranger fan 
Um, you know, he was, gosh, president of some, uh, uh, not the Texas League, but one of the, the minor league leagues here and uh, involved with the Fort Worth Cats. And so he was, he was big in the area. But Ethan, um, yeah, I, I think I've read quotes. If he's listening, he can correct us. But uh, <laughs> that he, you know, he, he came to Spurs games. He was down here, you know, remembers coming to those, those games during the early years. So, yeah, he was, uh, it's interesting. There's all kinds of people that are thrown into this. I mean, I think of Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton, you know, he grew up in Fort Worth. And I, I have read something from him. He remembers coming down to, you know, Spurs games and, and, and being a part of that. So there's so many people who just have interesting ties. Is Ethan Hawk a Rangers fan? Do we know this? Uh, he better be. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I'm just going to assume he is. I like that. I, I like knowing that. He's a uh, baseball fan. I know he's a baseball yeah. fan. Is there anything else? I wonder, there's so many elements to this, but as far as the move, is there anything else that is important for people to know and understand? And, and I ask that well aware that we could probably talk for another four hours about the yeah. move and still not cover everything, but are, are there things that you think stand out that, that Rangers fans really need to know about? Well, you know, I, I it, there's just a deep history there and you even, you know, how it all ended too for, for the, for the senators and, you know, Richard Nixon, like I mentioned, had, had tried to stop it at the final, the very last minute. Um, there was a dramatic moment as they're literally about to vote and there's a knock on the door um, of the room where all the, the owners were meeting and uh, Joe Cronin ordered it open and there was a platter it was a big old silver plate and uh, a porter walked it over to him. He opened it up and he read the note and um, he said, I feel like I need to read this to the rest of the room. Let me read it. And the note said, I implore you, I repeat, I implore you, do not move the nation's national pastime from the nation's capital, signed Richard M. Nixon. And so he had, uh, I mean, he, he, he tried at the very last minute to stop it and, and it couldn't, it, it just didn't happen and ended up voting um, to come here. But, you know, there, there's so many – look at the cooperation, too, of, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth Media, which you would never see today. He, he asked all of them to just go dark. Don't, don't report anything from, from this time that we're doing this because we, like, it's been 13 years, and we've had so many disappointments, and we just can't risk anything leaking, somebody getting upset. I mean, there was – you know, they were walking on thin ice, and they went quiet. I mean, Vern Lundquist even uh, talks about it, how, um, you know, he, he found out that the, the senators were moving, you know, through a phone call from my grandfather, and so – you look at that cooperation, though, that like so many people had to get this team here, and um, you know, start as the dream from one person, and and all these folks came, uh, you know, came with it, and it finally culminated in 1972 um, when the team moved here, and so it, it just that that long history um, is just so incredible, and then the loss that the Senators had when they left, and those fans, you know, were so upset and and stormed the field on the final game, and I mean, tore apart everything, and. Um, it was Ron Menchine, I, I think, who said that, um, you know, can you imagine the nation's capital not having Major League Baseball? And, and here it is, they don't. But yet, we reap the benefits of that. And so I've just always found it so fascinating um, because it mirrors the game of baseball. And that's what I think, for Ranger fans, it, you know, makes it interesting is that, you know, there's so many twists and turns and pitfall, pitfalls and setbacks. And, um, you know, it's like we remember the winning as, as fans, but we remember the losing more. We remember those those painful moments, and I think that stuck with my grandfather is all those moments that were just so crushing and heartbreaking, and yet you just keep going and going until you you know you finally win, and we got a team here. And so um, I just think it, it mirrors baseball. I think Ranger fans, you know, you've got to understand um, where we've been to appreciate, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, where we are now. Um, I, I, I think, um, uh, you know, Michael Young, if you, he was here with the Rangers nearly 13 years. It was like 12 years plus, at, actually as a player. And Tom Vandergrift took 13 years to get the, a team here. So when I think about it, he was the longest – I mean, he, he was at bat longer for the Rangers than anybody has ever worn the uniform. And so if you think about Michael Young's career, and if you were to take his entire career out of Rangers history and, you know, bury it, and all of that comes with it, you take Josh Hamilton, you take winning, you know, the ALCS twice, Ron Washington, Manager of the Year awards, you know, Rookie Awards. I mean, you literally take a vacuum and suck it out. Um, that's so much – that's just so much of our history and who we are as a team. So if you don't remember the past in those 13 years of how we got here, you kind of lose your identity of, of who you are. And so that's why I think it's important um, to just constantly be reminded of it and for fans to know about it. It is awesome. I mean, I, I've got to admit, I, I knew very little about you know, the origin story. You know, obviously knew that the Senators preceded the Rangers and you know, getting to, to share a broadcast booth with Eric Nadell. Yeah. I, I learned things along the way, you know, his familiarity, because, you know, while he wasn't here from day one, he was here in the 70s and uh, knew Bob Short and, and I think learned stuff uh, through, you know, those conversations, but uh, didn't know anywhere near the extent to, to which this actually took place and unfolded. Yeah. So 50 years. Mm-hmm. What? Well, I guess let me let me first ask it this way. What do you think your grandfather would would say? I mean, what what is his what were his wishes? And, and he passed in two thousand ten. What were his wishes about the organization moving forward? And and you know what would he say about the fact that it's it's now fifty years that. And I guess really 63, 64 yeah. years of, of work, essentially. Yeah, you know, I think he'd be super excited. You know, he'd look at the development, too, that's gone on around here and what's going up. I think he would be be thrilled by it. I think he'd, he'd be thrilled they're, they're still in Arlington because it was always an Arlington – it's always an Arlington project from day one. That That's what it was. So I think he, he'd be happy there. Um, you know, backing up, you mentioned 2010. He died in 2010, and – uh, we had taken him to all of the playoff games that year. That was our, the first time, you know, we were making a push for the World Series. And so he was here at the LDS, the LCS, and sitting up in the city suite. And, uh, you know, I, I just – I remember so vividly sitting next to him and when Alex Rodriguez was struck out by Neftali Feliz. And, I mean, it's like pandemonium. Everyone remembers that, like the confetti raining down. Like, I, I've never been more excited. Like, I mean, we were jumping up and down. And – you know, here he is in a wheelchair who, you know, has dementia and is just is, is somewhat a shell of himself, but he kind of, you know, was just taking it in and you just realize like, this is all here because this guy right next to me just had this, this great vision and dream. It all started with just one man and one idea. Um, and so that was neat. And, and we, we, we took him out that night. He loved, like I told you, just watching fans. And so I remember we went to uh, one of like the high levels in the stadium and the were at the old stadium there was the, those uh, ramps that you had to walk all the way down and he just loved watching people go down the ramps. And so you think from his vision to now 100 million Rangers fans have gone through those turnstiles since 72. I think that's just what he would want. Just that, you know, his love of baseball and, and the game that, um, you know, so many people didn't have when he was younger, they couldn't experience that now here we have it and we can enjoy it and we shouldn't take it for granted either right like it's I mean it, it's just a 
it's a great sport. It's you know part of a of America's identity, and um, I think he just would be thrilled that it's just continuing, really. So he got to see he did game and, and, six in so yeah, and then so what happened that night? That's actually interesting. Um, so I said how excited it, we were that you know he was there to see that. Uh, we kept him out so late that he fell and broke his hip that night, yeah. and so he ended up in a hospital and had surgery, was in a hospital bed, and then he died just weeks later. So it was so cool though. I mean, like I, I you know, we, we were, it was so devastating to lose him. Um, but at the same time, like how neat that his, his last public appearance anywhere, his last memory was, was literally at ALC, the ALCS, like watching just pandemonium happen, like just so much celebration and, and that was it. So it was really neat. And then the Rangers were kind enough they, posthumously gave him the uh, very first um, ALCS ring. So we still have that ring. And yeah, that was, uh, that was a neat time, certainly as a fan, but you know, personally it was how it ended for him. So I want, I want to get into your role in all this, but first just curious, who is your grandfather's favorite player? Uh, did he have, did he ever communicate favorites? Were they yeah. all his favorites? I, he was one of those people that they were all his favorites. Now, if you were to ask him, I think he loved everybody. Don't get me wrong. He had so many people he loved. But Jim Sumberg in particular, um, he, he just gravitated to Jim Sumberg and just he always just really liked him. But, I mean, you, that's hard. I mean, he, he loves Tom Grieve, all those, those early guys, the people who were so instrumental to, you know, um, help with getting the team here he loved. Uh, it's a tough question. But I'd say Jim Sumberg, who he would secretly say. And who's yours? <sighs> you know, I, I – man – I'd probably say Michael Young. Mm -hmm. I, I think because there's just something about the longevity and just grinding every day and, you know, being a clubhouse leader and just getting in and doing your work. Like, I, I'd probably say Michael Young. All right, there's more we're going to get into. But right now, let's pause uh, for this message. More of the Straight Up Texas podcast with Parker Vandergriff coming up next. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The new spicy honey butter sauce on Whataburger's new spicy honey butter chicken biscuits will be sure to put something good into your morning. Available for a limited time only. All right, back here on the Straight Up Texas podcast with Parker Vandergriff. And I said I wanted to get into your story, but before we do, there's one more story that we need to share about 421, April 21st, 1972, involving a, a uh, luminary, a a favorite son of, of Texas Rangers baseball actually being in the building. Yeah, well, the Rangers season that year had started a little bit late because of a strike, which, you know, coincidentally here we started with the strike this year as well. Um, so we played the Los Angeles Angels, and that was neat from a story perspective in that the Angels were our biggest allies for the longest time. And now, you know, they're one of our rivals, but yet they started as our, as our ally. And so Gene Autry was there um, on opening day. And lo and behold, a lot of people don't know this. We all remember the 72 team and Tom Grieve and, and Frank Howard and Jeff Burroughs and all those folks here. 
but people don't remember down the other line was Nolan Ryan. And so Nolan Ryan was there on opening day. And then, you know, fast forward, he'd obviously become the icon that he has. Um, but I remember in 2010, when we were at a Ranger game here with my grandfather, it was opening day of that year. And we were um, eating somewhere at the old Diamond Club. And it was my dad and I and my grandfather, and he was in a wheelchair. And we're sitting there. And he, my grandfather feels a squeeze on his shoulder. And he looks back, and it's Nolan. And Nolan says, hey, Mayor, how are you doing? I want to come over here and say hi. And uh, so that was a horrible impression. He's got a deeper <laughs> voice. That was good. Um, and he said, you know, i got to tell you something. He said, you might not remember this, but I was here on opening day in 1972, and I remember when they gave you that big white Stetson hat, and you looked like the dumbest mayor I've ever seen. <laughs> and he did. And that's why my grandfather never wore that hat, because he looked awful in it. But, yeah, it's just so funny that no one was here. No one knows that literally our, our, our icon of our franchise was here from day one. That's pretty crazy. That, that's remarkable. Uh, why you? Why, why are you the, the person in the Vandergriff family who has kind of carried on this story? And, and we're going to get into this, but you've got all sorts of pieces of memorabilia and artifacts. How did it end up with you? Well, I, well, truthfully, I never was that interested. I mean, I loved the Rangers. Um, of course, growing up, I was a huge fan. But I, as a kid, you just don't really, you don't really care as much. I think you just, just like having fun. And so, you know, I, I didn't give two thoughts to it. Um, you know, I was here on, it was the final opening day in 1993. And I remember when my granddad threw out that pitch at Arlington Stadium. And it's a horrible first pitch. Uh, but I, I have those memories. And, you know, throughout his life, I just always always heard little stories and just interesting things and the characters that came in and out. And, you know, I think, you know, Lamar Hunt was, you know, supposed to be the very first owner of the Rangers and like, wow, I mean, what having Lamar Hunt, who's, you know, the visionary for American football league, I imagine what that would have been here. So there are those things that as you get older, you're just like, huh, that's, I never thought about that. Or I didn't know that. And, um, you know, you hear the people that certainly were up against them and, and, it was really towards the end of his life when uh, I don't think anyone in our family really knew the extent of, of everything that he saved. And he didn't, he, he wasn't a braggadocious person. He didn't really, nothing was about him. So it's why he never truly talked much about it and like the lengths that he went through. And I mean, I mean, I think about the death threats that, that he got, you think of, I mean, they hung effigy dolls, you know, back in, in 71. I mean, all of like just the, the nastiness and, you know, the, the people in the, in the area, you know, local politicians, people who were against him here, and, you know, Tech Schramm, one of them being with the Dallas Cowboys, who was highly skeptical of, of the Rangers coming here, and yet, you know, my granddad had to continue on. So as I got older, and we kind of collectively unarchived, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of boxes of everything that he saved, and every page of correspondence from everything. I mean, not just baseball, but everything. And you just start understanding the depth of like where he went and what he did. It just started getting more fascinating. And then and and then the uh, the people you know who um, you know would write in and out. You know you don't write letters anymore like you did back then. And like I think you're able to get much more emotion and capture more from letters because that's and you're very intentional. And so just seeing you know uh, I just go back to Lamar. But um, you know in 2006 I found a note from Lamar. He had wrote to my grandfather, and they were both kind of towards the end of, uh, you know, of their lives. And it, just this really f appreciative note, like I, that, you know, no, no one will, will know all the lengths and depths of what you've done for our area. And, you know, I'm just so appreciative for 
you being my friend. And so those things just like kind of stick with you. And I just, I, you know, probably I ended up just taking it over as a family member and just became, you know, just enamored by all, all these materials. And I'd uncover, you know, one thing, um, you know, even his broadcasting notes, like I had no idea he saved all his broadcasting notes when he was a broadcaster for the Rangers. And like just finding those was just so fascinating and reading all his notes about players. But um, it just as you just start accumulating it and lo- looking at you to see this totality and the depth and even with family. I mean, it was a struggle with with family. I mean, it's, you know, there's it's also a story of romance and, and love and, and family. And so um, it's just what what they had to go through. You just it it was interesting from a family historical perspective. And then also, man, just I don't think the Rangers as an organization, as a fan base, as you know, as anything that they don't know, they just don't know the depth of what it took to get this team here. And that's why I just found it fascinating. So did he have a favorite artifact that you were aware of? Um, he, uh, you know, not really. He just, um, he's, you know, he saved everything, he, he, but he never, like I, when we'd walk in his house, you would never see things anywhere. Like he, I, I it's just part of his nature. He just wasn't one to put achievements up everywhere but um he did you know keep all the baseballs like he he loved all those baseballs like that first pitch baseball were important to him and he eventually donated it to the museum here at the ballpark and now we have it back but things like that were important he loved his like personal collection like dizzy dean he loved dizzy dean and so he had this (laughs) dizzy dean signed ball that he like he just absolutely loved so things like that but um no you know i i i probably you know i would find like i i i've found notes from JFK and I found notes from, um, you know, other presidents and, you know, uh, Branch Rickey, all these other baseball luminaries. And, you know, I didn't know those existed. I don't even know if he knew they existed because to him it was just correspondence, you know, at his time when he was in office. And so I, I probably geek out more over it than he probably ever would have. So, okay. I'm going to put you on the spot. Your favorite, just from like a baseball sports fan perspective and your favorite from like this is so meaningful point of view uh, well probably two that i mentioned i think the from a baseball perspective that first pitch in 72 mm-hmm. is pretty meaningful because i think it's just symbolic of everything that happened before um he also if you notice in photos of him from opening day he's holding three baseballs and so they you know he threw out the first pitch but then they also did some some they staged it with two others and so those two others he had all of the men and, and the folks who were involved in helping him get the team here, he had them all sign it. So people like Ray Hutchison, who was Kay Bailey Hutchison's husband, was their lawyer. Um, and so, you know, he signed it, Bob Shore, Joe Burke, all those folks. Um, and then the other one, he had my family sign it. And so my grandmother was on the sweet spot, and then, and then the kids were around it. And that, I think those three balls, for me, I think they, they just symbolize so much. The first pitch symbolizes the fandom and then we have the from a personal side to have the family um and then i'd say really a personal one was on that last game that he was at at the alcs i had just a hunch i I just feel like i knew we were going to win and so i brought five baseballs with me on that night and so after we won i had him sign those five baseballs and they're obviously the last baseballs he's ever signed ever because he was in a hospital and then died and so um we, I've got four of them, and then Tom Schieffer has one of them. And Tom Schieffer was big and really trying to keep the story alive, and so um, that's why I gave one to him. But uh, those are meaningful to me because they're literally the last baseballs that he's ever touched. And so I'd, I'd say 
those two things, the balls are just, they have more meaning to me. Why five? Well, and, and, and what do you just like? What why? I could grab. Okay. Okay. And then the, because I had, it was, it was weird. I, I don't know why instead of just bringing one, I was like, I'll bring five in case something <laughs> happens to one yeah. or like in case a family member want one, I just naturally and, brought five. And you have the other four. Mm-hmm. Do you have any plan? Have you ever thought, I mean, you gave one to Tom, she- Tom Schieffer, obviously, you know, as a meaningful uh, gift. Do you have plans of giving those to the Certainly three if the Rangers, them? if the Rangers wanted one, I'd give them one. Um, you know, I always, we have a lot of stuff um, and we've accumulated and it's a museum worth of, of, of items. And so, you know, I've, I think we've all held onto it with the hopes that one day there'll be a museum somewhere and that, uh, you know, all this could, could be housed in. Um, I mean, there's political cartoons. I've, I've got original Jersey Senators, Rangers, you know, big giant sign, the big highway sign that was outside here that said Arlington Stadium, seven seas, six flags over Texas. So I think there's a lot of, there's a story to be told with just those, with all of that stuff. So yeah, the intention was it's some, somewhere we're holding on to it in case it can go up somewhere. Cause I think Ranger fans would be quite excited about a lot of it. One of the lines I think that has been shared by, by both of us throughout this conversation is that, you know, if only people knew the true extent or uh, I don't think people realize the whole story, you run a production company catch. And I guess if you thought about putting this uh, into visual storytelling form. Where are we on this? This has got to be done, right? I I think it absolutely needs to be done. I think that it's a, um, I think it's a gold mine from the perspective of, I think it would not only grow the reach um, of the Rangers, but I think, I think people would embrace it. I think people around here embrace it. I think it's not only a story about our story, but it's a, it's a, a dual story in the sense it's the story of Washington baseball. It's the story of the senators of the nationals and why they exist today in 2005. So I think there's so many people um, who would latch onto it. Cause like I said, it's, it's a story of, of friendship. It's a story of family. It's, it really embodies America's pastime. And so I do think it's one that people would gravitate to. And then you think of all, all those characters, um, like all of them combined together. I mean, some of the names I mentioned should have biopics, on their own. They all should all be their own movies. And yet all these people were part of one story together. It's pretty powerful. And then not even to mention, I mean, the senators that finally, I mean, they were hilarious. I mean, you think of Kurt Flood and Denny McLean and Frank Howard. And I mean, this like ragtag group of people that group of players that came together. Um, I mean, you have that and then going on with the, with the, the mess of the, you know, baseball in the Capitol falling apart. And he had a pretty well-known manager too. And, and Ted Williams. Yeah. I mean, that guy, well, he should have lots of movies made after him. So, I mean, there's just, there's so much there that it's, it, to me, it's like, why not? Why, why, why can't this be? There's, it's a, it's a, um, above all odds story. And, um, you know, I mentioned to you earlier that, you know, what drove my grandfather was, you know, never forgetting the pain of losing. And that's ultimately what made him win. And that's like what drove this boy mayor to achieve the impossible years ago. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's a story that should be told. I think Rangers, Ranger uh, fans would embrace it. And um, I think it should be made. I think sometimes you learn a lot in, in telling a story based on the reactions of people uh, and, and maybe people's sharing stories in response to, to your telling of a story. Is there something that stood out in, in so doing and, and, and sharing the story and pitching the story, reactions, responses that 
have allowed you to even further understand or just an interaction that has stood out? Yeah, you know, most people, I think, when I talk to them about it, they, they the first their first reaction is they say, man, I just had no idea. They, I just had no clue. I think Guilty. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> if, you know, going back in time, I think a lot of people did know. But as time progresses and as, you know, when you don't continue the story and telling it, and reminding folks, because I mean, our, our area has grown tremendously. I mean, most of the people that live around here are, are new fans, right? A lot of them came around in the past 20 years. So um, most people don't know it. And so I think that's the, the first reaction is, man, I didn't know. You do have a lot of people, I think, that they do find a commonality. Um, you know, Jim Ross, who's our Arlington mayor here, you know, he, he even said, you know, a couple of years ago, I had no idea. And he's like, man, I, I grew up a Detroit Tigers fan. And so Denny McLean, to me was like, you know, God and I had no idea how instrumental my granddad loved Denny McLean because he was he was really helpful in, in being an advocate for the team down here. And of course, he never made the team. They cut him right before. Um, but I mean, people find commonality somewhere. And I think that's what's what's neat w- with it is there are so many commonalities. When I look around this ballpark, we do a read, you know, for for games about getting a ballpark tour and I think the the language and the read is so true it you know it it says on the piece of paper that you know the the history of the ballpark is is contained within these walls or demonstrated on the walls and uh, you know whether it's artwork displays shadow boxes whatnot and and certainly your grandfather's legacy and and the history of which he's a part is uh, very much a part of you know that that conversation and, and and what is represented and then even more so now we've got the 421 food hall and and you know hopefully i think it's cool to to name it that i hope rangers fans understand the significance of that number and, and ultimately that 421 is not 421 it's a date but for you to and as a rangers fan i mean you're here it's not like you live in you know, Sioux Falls or something, and you drop in once a year, and it's a reminder. I mean, you're here, and to have that that reminder of, of your family's impact, your grandfather's legacy, how cool is that, not just for you, but your family, and, and, and not like from a self, I mean, you mentioned your grandfather wasn't a braggadocious look at me guy, so not from like a selfish standpoint, but just a, hey, he put in so much blood, sweat, and tears to this, and he's not forgotten, and that's really, really special. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you summed it up right there. I think it is neat that, you know, the Rangers organi- the Rangers organization will continue to look at those ways and, you know, how they can highlight the story. And, you know, certainly his achievements here are vast, and I, I just think it, it – even those subtle reminders, when you walk in the stadium, you see his statue there, and he's kind of the entrance, and you now you've got the Hall of Fame plaques – beside him I, th- I think it's I think it's nice because it really it did all begin with him right and that's um, how this team came to be so I think they're just subtle reminders um, to folks of where we've been you know I I thought of this earlier that um, you know why we celebrate a Jackie Robinson day and that's you know such a important day um, you know for baseball and really I mean Jackie was I mean, he was transformative, you know, for the civil rights movement in America, in all sports, in America, everywhere. And so um, you just imagine if we just stopped talking about him and we stopped talking about those, his achievements and, and, and what he did, what that would mean for the game. I mean, because baseball's, you know, it's been such a, a integral part to our society. So I, I kind of correlate that a little bit with, with this story and being able to just recognize 
not only my grandfather's achievements, but the people that came with them. I mean, we can't forget there were lots of folks that were involved with them and, and to just kind of forget about it and, and not, you know, tell people that story, I think it does a disservice to the organization. Cause like I said, you, you lose your identity. You, you lose part of your soul. Um, when you, when you don't talk about where we've been. All right, Parker, why should fans care about April 21st? April 21st was the day that I'd say Ranger fandom was born. And so from the first person who walked through that turnstile in 1972, all the way until today with nearly 100 million fans who've gone through this, this stadium, I think it's important to recognize, to understand where we've been, how we got there. And I think it's just a celebration uh, of the day of finally having Major League Baseball in North Texas. Well, I know for me, and, and I'm sure for a lot of other people tuning in, I mean, the Rangers have provided, I mean, forget the fact that I, I now broadcast the games and a part of the broadcast from, I mean, the first game I ever went to that I remember, Kevin Gross was the starting <laughs> pitcher. Uh, I remember Jim Tomey had some weird batting stance and, Otis Nixon was leading off. I mean, I, I barely remember, but like, I, I think I must've been four, I don't know, maybe five, but from that point on, the Rangers have been such a huge part of my life. And, and I think that sometimes sports, sports gets cast aside or a sport or whatever. Oh, it's just a game, whatever it doesn't, but like, I'm, I'm the type of person I, I emotionally invest. And I think a lot of sports fans do. And yeah, at the end of the day, is it is it a game that you know isn't having any impact on the health of my family sure i guess but i think as as individuals we all have our passions and this has been such a passion for me and just as just as a fan i mean forget and just like you forget the family tie i know you're you're a fan and and you know what it's like to be a fan and now for you, you add in the family tie. For me, professionally, my existence is, is tied around, you know, this organization. But it, it just it brings me joy every day. And so I'm thanking you for what your grandfather did because I don't think I ever really, you know, I, I knew that at some point the Rangers came here. But until we had this conversation, I don't think I realized the extent to which everything had to happen and, and took place for this to be here. And for, for me, and, and I, I guess I'm saying this on behalf of so many Rangers fans, I hope, and I'm sure you mentioned your grandfather loved looking at the fans. So I'm sure this was never lost on him, but your grandfather helped directly and indirectly bring memories. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I going to games with my dad, I'm sure people have that. Yeah. That's, you know, those same, I mean, that's, that's really cool. And I don't know why I feel the need to, to share that, but I, I, Thank you to, to your grandfather and your family, uh, because I'm sure there were some tough days there that, that you might not have necessarily been alive for, but you know, you're, they you're were there. Yeah. And, uh, and to, to create this, this organization that has created memories and joys and smiles and, and tears even, yeah. but that's all part of it. That's well, what makes it well, special. Well, the ripple effect, I mean, talk about that. Yeah. I mean that just the effort to get that, the team here and, and it being here, how that has changed. I mean, Thousands, I mean, thousands of lives, so many lives. I mean, you even think about those players who moved down here and all, all the executives, a lot of them are still here. I mean, yeah. like their lives have been totally changed. You know, I, I mentioned Jim Sundberg earlier. Um, he never thought in a million years he'd be living in Texas, you know. But like, so you think of that and then 
you know, I, I, you know, I like to joke about President Bush. You know, if, if he had not owned the Rangers to give him the platform to then run for governor, he might never have been president. And think how that's changed world history. I mean, there's so many of, of, of those, you know, intertwining nuggets that you could just extrapolate all over and just, uh, I mean, Six Flags, I mentioned Six Flags earlier. Six Flags came about because of the effort to get the Rangers here. It wanted to get baseball. Now Six Flags is a global theme park. And people don't know it. The original started literally next door to the Rangers. So, I mean, there's ripple effects there. So, you know, to your point, you could you could extrapolate on and on just all the, all the ways in which the Rangers being here have impacted so many lives. Everyone has a story, but I think it, it starts with your grandfather's story. And that's the, that is the, the root that everything branches off of, which is really cool. Parker, yeah. thanks so much for, for being here and telling the story. Sure. Thank you for having me. It was fun. This is awesome. This has been a, a special edition of the straight up Texas podcast presented by Whataburger. Uh, going to be bringing you stories throughout the Rangers season. We really hope that uh, you tune in for, for more conversations like this, but uh, this is definitely a special one. Uh, thank you so much to Parker Vandergriff for joining us, and thank you to all of you for tuning in. Until next time. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.